for those of you guys who don't know me, I'm Blake Baston. Um, I'm the director of finance and administration at the, at the church, and I've, I know a lot of you in here. And if you guys have been in this class long, you are faithful followers of God and, and great members of this church. I appreciate that. But uh, for those of you who don't know me, my job here is I, I manage the finances of the church and all the operations of the church. So uh, I tell people it's all the non-God work uh, is what I do around here. <laughs> Uh, but God is at the center of it, I promise. Uh, but I'm on the our kind of executive leadership team of the church uh, with Marty and Terry and Bill and, and others. And um, I'm, I serve on the finance and facility committee. That's kind of the body that oversees the finances and facility operations of this church. I present to them on a monthly basis. And then I get to serve in the elder board presenting to them on a monthly basis. And I just want you to say that this prayer you just prayed that we would constantly seek the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of man is a very important prayer. So many churches have gone astray because, as Marty might say, they get too big for their britches, and they really start to seek the wisdom of man. And, and I want you to know uh, that our elders, in particular in this church and our leadership team, fully believes that we do not have the power uh, to make the decisions, to lead the church uh, the way that, that we don't have that power to do it ourselves. It comes only from God, and the prayer you just prayed matters. And so I just want to encourage you that you would continue to pray that uh, for this church, that we would always, always put God at the center. I'm excited about this lesson today. Uh, I have to say, I've, I've taught this lesson five or six times to a number of different Sunday school classes, and uh, I kind of felt like I had it down. And uh, everybody okay? Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I kind of feel like I had this lesson down, kind of nailed pat, and then last night around 10 o'clock, uh, I don't know what happened, but I was uh, kind of meditating on some scripture I'd read earlier in the day, and, and this lesson changed. So, so we'll see where this goes. Uh, I, I had a, a lot of things I wanted to talk about today. One is I wanted to talk about a very, some very, very practical sins that we deal with, especially in American culture. Uh, especially in a more fluent area. If we were to take an average of the American economy and we were to look at the little microcosm we have here in North OKC, we're in a bit more fluent area than the average of all the U.S. Everyone's going to come at it from different areas. Uh, but, but one of the, the, the major practical sins that we have to deal with is greed, self-indulgence, self-centeredness. These are, these are real issues we struggle with. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. I also want to talk about finances a little bit, as you would expect me to talk about. I am the finance guy of the church. Talk about finances a little bit. Uh, and to the extent I was hoping we had some time at the end, that I could actually give you a bit of an overview of the church's financials and let you ask any questions you may have about things that are going on in the church or kind of where we stand financially, uh, help you understand that. That being said, we are in Cliff Sanders' class, which means that I'm going to get excited about the Bible and probably only get 25% of the lesson done. So... <laughs> You guys tell Cliff I told you that. I listen to this class every now and then on podcasts, and I know Cliff. So, uh, so we'll probably only get about, you know, just a little bit of this done. Uh, I, I've, I've named this lesson, Hostile or Hospitable, How Will We Respond? Hostile or Hospitable, How Will We Respond? And I want you to keep this in mind. And I picked up this title after listening to Andy Roshkov give a lesson to the gathering on Tuesday evening. And if you're unfamiliar with what the gathering is, this is a, uh, a fellowship of young adults, people in their 20s and 30s that come together on Tuesday nights to worship and to, to study the word. And, and, you know, the millennials and, and whatever generation comes after the millennials, and I'm not quite sure what they're called, but they get a bad rap. You know, they get a bad rap all the time. But, you know, you look at 300-plus 
people in their 20s and 30s showing up on a Tuesday to worship God and study the Word, and they don't just want to worship the fluffy Word. They want to worship the Word. They want to be, they, they want to understand truth, and I love how Andy just gives them truth. And he used these words, hostile or hospitable, and they really stuck with me as he's talking about how are we going to deal with our sin? Are we going to be hostile to it? Are we going to go and attack it? Are we going to kill it? Or are we going to be hospitable to it? Are we just going to kind of push it away, be, be somewhat friendly to it? And these three sins we're going to talk about today, greed, self-indulgence, self-centeredness, are real sins. They are lions that are crouching at the door ready to attack. Are we going to be hostile to it or hospitable? I want you to keep that theme in your head as we go through this lesson. I wanted to start out the lesson, though, by, by reading a passage uh, out of Exodus that really hit me hard yesterday as I was studying just in my own daily Bible reading plan. And if you turn, have your Bibles open, it's Exodus 34, uh, verse 10. And what is happening in this passage is right before this passage, you'll see that the people had done some pretty horrific things. Moses had gone up. Uh, we had seen you know, the calf constructed. The people had sinned. Moses had had to intercede on behalf of the people. Uh, a lot of really bad things uh, had gone on. And so, you know, God had shown his grace in pretty incredible ways. He had shown his grace by bringing the people out of Egypt to begin with. He had shown his grace by not just blotting them all out of existence after they, uh, they uh, were worshiping idols. He had shown grace in an incredible way. The people had repented under Moses' leadership and were turning to God and really asking for forgiveness of their iniquities, turning to him, uh, looking unto him. And then God says these words. He says, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. It is an awesome thing that I will do with you. I love this promise that you see God make. He makes an incredible promise about what he is going to do through the people. Not what the people are going to do, but what he is going to do through the people. And every now and then I've I've felt like that uh, here at Crossing since I've been here. I've been here almost four years or three and a half years. And and I've felt that feeling at times of what God's going to do through this church, what he's going to do through us as a people. Not what we're going to do, but what he is going to do. And sometimes I get really excited about that, about, okay, God's going to do a great thing, so let's go, let's get after it. And and sometimes that means that I want to go charge the hill and do things under my own power. But what I thought was very interesting about this passage is, is if you read past this passage, after God has made this incredible promise about all the marvels he's going to do for his people, what follows is very, very simple daily application of his guidance, right? It's not, I need you to go move that mountain. It's don't go worship idols tomorrow. You know, it's not, it's not, I need you to go save this group of people. It's, it's make sure I'm always God, no matter, no matter what, above all things. He gives the people some very, very specific guidance on a daily basis to follow. It's not complicated, but it's, it's applicable to us. And so I want you to think about that today. We have no idea what God is planning to do through us as a body of Christ here at Crossings. Uh, But but it seems like he responds and he he accomplishes so much through a people of faith. And we don't have to put all that on our shoulders. But what we have to do is just say, each day I'm going to wake up daily 
and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to obey his words. I'm going to obey the practical application he's given us in his word. And so these three sins we're going to talk about, greed, self-indulgence, self-centeredness, are big sins. They're lions crouching at our doors. But the way we fight back against it is very, very practical. We're called to be obedient to God daily in the way he asks us to be. He takes care of the rest. So so as we get into this, I want you to think about that. There's nothing you can do under your own power. God provides the power. Just follow what he says to do each day. I find a lot of freedom in that. In in all honesty, I was always a guy back in my prior career uh, before I came here that I put everything on my own shoulders and I had to figure out, I had to have the unique answer. It had to be original Blake Basta material for me to do anything. I had to solve all the problems. I had to be the hero at work. Uh, And a lot of pressure gets put on yourself whenever you try to attack the world that way. God's saying, just don't worry about that. Just follow my commands each day whenever you wake up. So as we get into this, Uh, let's really attack this topic of greed first. And I gave you in your handout there a little section of Ecclesiastes uh, written by Solomon. And so if you you know anything about Solomon, I'm sure you studied Solomon a lot in here in this class, but Solomon was an interesting guy. He was the one guy in the world who had all the resources, all the knowledge, all the power, all the wisdom to live whatever life he so desired. And so he does that. And the story of Ecclesiastes is really him doing that. He goes out and he lives lots of different types of life. He chases reason. He chases indulgences. He he goes down all these different pathways. And after he gets done down every single path that he tries to follow in a way that only Solomon could do, what does he say in Ecclesiastes? What's his conclusion every time he goes down a different path? Does anyone know his conclusion? It's all worthless, right? It's all worthless. It's all meaningless. It's, it, it, it's, it, nothing is meaningful under the sun, right? It's, it's all absolutely meaningless. If Solomon can come to that conclusion, and, you know, if you think about it, he had all the money in the world. He had, what, like 700 concubines at one point in time. He, he had every type of resource the world could throw at you, and he came to that conclusion. We can also just kind of take his word for it for a moment, and we can come to the same conclusion as well. And one thing he says in there is he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This is the richest man in the world at this point in time, right? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he can carry away in his hand." What, what Solomon is really saying is, is, is you might think that this, this desire to accumulate wealth, this desire to have more will be meaningful to you, but I promise it's all meaningless, right? The only thing that matters in life, if you get to the very end of Ecclesiastes, the only thing that meters, matters in life is to be obedient, to follow God's commands, right? To put him as Lord of your life. That is the only way we will find meaning in this life. This idea of greed is the desire to always have more. No matter what you have, you want a little bit more. What was the famous, um, um, oh, who's the New York guy? Uh, Rockefeller. What was his famous quote? Said, how much money is enough? One, just a little bit more, right? There, it's, it's, it's embedded in us, right? That we always want just a little bit more. I remember whenever I got out of college, I moved to Houston, 
And I took a job in the oil and gas industry as an accountant and then a finance guy. And I won't get, bore you with, with, with that whole story. But I remember getting my first paycheck. And my, my now wife was still here in Oklahoma finishing up school. And I call her to tell her how much money I'd made. And I go, we are rich. We are rich. When you come down, we get married, we're getting a sea-doo, you know? And, and I said, that's, that's what we're going to do? And she goes, well, do we have something to pull the sea-doo? I go, no, we don't. She goes, well, where are we going to go take the sea-doo? I go, I don't know, but I've always wanted a sea-doo, right? And so I go, we're rich. I'm just going to go get one. And, and we're making nothing. Like, I'm making absolutely nothing. But I thought I was rich. And then I did the math in my budget, because I'm a good finance guy. I did the math, paid all the bills, realized I still had no money and couldn't afford the sea-doo. But I'm like, you know what? Next year, I'm going to get a raise. Then I'll get that sea-doo. And what was fascinating is every single year, I remember at that little bit of money I started making, you know, I started to make more money and more money and more money and more money. And my bank account never changed. Never change. Because as I made more money, I just go, well, I need, a bit, I, I need a nicer car. I need a nicer place to live. I need nicer clothes. I need to get my wife nicer presents. We need to go on nicer trips. We need to, oh, we can afford more debt now. How cool is that? You know, <laughs> this is coming from a finance guy. Now, trust me, God's given me a lot of wisdom. This is not how I steward the church. So, <laughs> I promise. I promise. But... So I say that, that it was very easy to fall into that trap, right? How many rich people do you know that have no money, right? They're always wanting to accumulate more. Now, we could sit here and we can think about greed for a second. And when we think about greed, what does that word bring to mind to you guys? Just think about that a little bit. What does that bring to mind? I know in my mind, I, I, I've envisioned the Wall Street poster, you know, greed is good, and, and, I, and I envision the people with the multi-million dollar yachts, and, and I, I, I imagine these incredibly beautiful lake homes and beach homes and all this incredible luxury uh, that, that we can go and we can get in this world. Whenever, that's always where my mind has gone when I think about greed. Now, here's the issue with greed. It's not just for the rich people. Right? That desire to want more, to always need more, is not just for the rich. And I, I used to be back, I was in oil and gas, and then I worked for a mining company in Australia for a while. And so mining has always been an incredibly uh, fascinating venture for me. Now, whenever I was a miner, uh, I mined with trucks that were as big as this room and, and heavy equipment, and, and so it was a very different deal. But I watched this documentary about these miners in the late 60s, early 70s in Peru. And you see some pictures there on your handout. This documentary I'd highly recommend is called Salt of the Earth. It's this photographer who used to be a World Bank economist. And you've, you've all seen pictures from this photographer because you remember during the Hotel Rwanda, during all the African genocides, all those pictures you saw at that point in time, he was the leading photographer that was on the ground uh, in Africa at those moments. So you've all seen pictures from this guy. Uh, but he started out by, uh, by taking photographs of people doing manual labor in his home in South, Af in South America. And so I watched this um, documentary, and this picture that you see here on the left and the right, this is a gold mine in Peru. And if you look, you see no trucks there, no heavy machinery, nothing. This is a 100% manual labor gold mine, not that long ago in history. The gold mine, if you know anything about mining, you have to dig down into a pit. And you normally dig the pit with these kind of circular bands so that you can take trucks on and off roads down the pit. 
Well, they didn't have trucks. They only had people. And so what they did is they dug straight down and they used these ladders for people whenever they got to the bottom of the pit. They would, they would put all this dirt into a bag, put it on their shoulder, and they'd climb up that ladder, those wooden rickety ladders. And when they got to the top, they would take their bag of dirt, they would dump it on a pile to be processed, and then the way they got back down to the pit, I want you to see how steep those walls are. They sprinted down the pit. They sprinted down the walls. They had to sprint because if they didn't sprint, they would fall, and if they fell, they would get trampled to death, right? This was the way this mining was done. Now, now that was fascinating, I thought, but what was more fascinating about this was the way these people were compensated. About once a month, as I recall, about once a month, the, uh, the way they got paid was not in cash, not in any currency, not in food, but they were given the opportunity to take one bag of dirt that they had collected and take it home with the hope that there was gold in that bag. So some of those guys would go home and there was nothing. Sometimes, though, they'd go home and there was gold. And what was fascinating to me was the way the photographer explained this, he said, they became intoxicated by the idea of more gold. Intoxicated by that idea that they would run down and sprint down the pit as people are dying on a daily basis for the hope that they could get more gold. Even when they found gold that was enough for them to live on for a good period of time, they would put their lives at risk because they had that same desire to want more. Right? So I want us to be careful when we think about greed. You could have no money in this classroom. You could have a lot of money. The same factors of sin, that lion that is crouching at our door, are there to attack us. Right? That is what greed is. And so with that in mind, I want to read from Luke. I want you to see what Jesus teaches about greed, self-indulgence, and self-centeredness. And I'll get a bit more into those other two sins here as we go. But if you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verse 15, this is the parable of the rich fool. It says, and he said to them, I'm starting on 15. It says, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's many things I hope that Jesus Christ tells me whenever I get to heaven. Him saying, fool, what have you done, is not what I want to hear. <laughs> Let that be motivation for us enough. But I want you to see in this passage, what does the rich fool, what does this guy want? What's his desire? Right. What do you see in here? He wants more, right? That's one thing he wants, is he wants more. He wants more. He wants more grain. It says he's, he's, had, he's been produced plentifully. He has what he needs. He wants more. So much so that he destroys what he has to build up bigger grains, right? He wants more. 
Then he has another thing he wants. We just, we just heard it. He has a desire that maybe if he has more, he'll be able to do what? Take it easy. Soul, eat, drink, be merry. Where have you heard eat, drink, and be merry before in the Bible? Ecclesiastes, right? Uh, so you see this. He has a desire for more, and hopefully if he has more, he'll be able to sit back and take it easy in life. Is that not the American culture? Right? I mean, honestly, is that not what we're dealing with today in, in such an incredible way? I, I, I'll tell you this. When I was in the corporate world, we had people who would just kill themselves at work because they wanted a nicer car or a nicer house, and they were absolutely miserable. But the idea was, one day I'm going to retire, and I don't have to do anything. Right? I'm going to retire, and I'm done. I can, I can sit back. I'm going to have a lake house. I'm going to go out. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to go to Mexico. I'm going to drink margaritas on the beach. And, and then it's like, great. You have three margaritas on the beach. Now what? Right? Uh, sorry, this is not a lesson about alcohol in the church. <laughs> this is about a former life, not a current life. But, but you think about this, you go, you know, it's like there's this idea in there that maybe one day it'll be easier. Maybe one day the pain of this life that I'm dealing with will not be so bad and it'll just be easier and I can relax. I can eat, drink, and be merry. I'll tell you, for people who you've seen who've experienced this, who've, 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 who've just toiled and toiled and, and agonized and always pursued more, and that that day finally comes that they can just stop, what normally happens? They die. They die. They die. Maybe not immediately, but they slowly die. Their soul dies. They, they, they can't deal with, with, with the, the, the stop. We are meant to be productive. Right? We're meant to be productive. You know, I'm sure Cliff has taught this many times before, but work is not a product of the fall. Not liking your work is a product of the fall, but work itself is not a product of the fall. Adam and Eve were working in the garden before the fall. Right? We're meant to be productive, but that's a lie that our culture has told us. Two lies that say you need to want more. That's one way I'm going to get your attention and your affections and your, and your ego. You're going to want more. And then you're going to have this other desire that says, and then at some point in time when you have it all, you can just sit back, put your feet up, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And then life will be easier. Everything will be okay then. They're both lies. Absolute lies. So, and they're lies you're being told on a daily basis. And I know a couple of you guys in this room who have retired, and you know that second lie really well because I've seen you change, right? I've seen you change. I've seen you get productive in some capacity. You've changed. But they're both lies. So my question is, we want to go back to the very title of this. This is a sin. This is a lie that's going to attack us. Are we going to be hostile to that sin or hospitable to it? God gives us some mechanisms here to protect us. You know, he goes back to the, he goes, I want you to be obedient daily to me. Trust me because I love you. I care for you. You are my children. He loves us just like you love your children. He loves us. And he's saying, I know how to protect you from this sin. Will you do what I say daily? So what is one mechanism you think he gives us to protect us against greed? This is where the finance guy gets to bring in tithing, by the way. So you say how I work that in there slowly. If I just started with tithing, you guys would have turned me off at the very beginning. But, but, but yeah, do you have a, a thought? Yep. That's the other lie, right? Yeah, if you look at the parable of the rich fool, 
he says I and my 12 or 13 times, that it's his, right? Think about, think about the people who were in the promised land at that time. Was that land theirs by their own rights? No. God said, I'm giving you that land. Did they get out of Egypt by themselves? No. Did they win the battle against all the locals there, all the Canaanites by themselves? No. That land was given to them by God, right? Everything that we have is something that God has entrusted to us. And I got to say, if you're sitting in this room in America today, you have been entrusted with much. And Luke 12, 48 is a true statement. For those who have been entrusted with much, much is to be expected, right? We have been entrusted with much, but it's not ours at all. If you go back, uh, and I want you to think about this concept of a tithe real quick, because it gets to what you're saying. If you go back to the Old Testament, I always like to use the example of Ruth and Boaz uh, to explain this concept. So Ruth was a Moabite widow uh, who's, you know, obviously she's a widow, her husband died, and she follows Naomi, her mother-in-law, who's a Jewish woman, back to Bethlehem. And Ruth has no money. Naomi has no money. They, all the men at that point in time who were there, supposed to be there to protect and provide, were gone. Everyone had died. They had no way to protect themselves, to provide for themselves. But God knows us and he loves us and he provided a way in his law and his instruction to care for people in those situations. And so he would tell all the farmers at that time to say, I have entrusted you with this farm, this farm of wheat, right? And he says, I don't want you to farm all of it. I don't want you to harvest 100% of that, that, that field. I want you to leave the corners of that field fallow. I want you to not harvest that. So that people like Ruth, people like Naomi, foreigners who are passing through, people in need could go and glean from the field, glean from those corners themselves and, and have something to provide. That land was not the farmer's anyway. That land was God's. God had entrusted the farm there. That's a small act of obedience. And whenever you look at the corners, that would normally equate to about 10% of the square footage of the field. And so part of where we get our tithe from, which means a tenth, is from that old example of the fields, the corners being left fallow to be able to provide for others in that area. Now, Boaz, who was the farmer in the story, he's also the savior, the redeemer in the story. Boaz is our Christ figure uh, in the story of Ruth. Boaz did exactly as he was instructed. He obeyed the command of God to make sure the corners of his field were, fa were fallow. He obeyed that command to, to, to make sure he was one obedient and thankful to God, but also it allowed Ruth to enter into this story. Ruth goes into Boaz's field to glean in the field. And so we see God now use the faith of Boaz and the faith, faith of Ruth to do some pretty incredible things. Boaz sees Ruth in the field. He hears the story of all that she has done for Naomi, the love she has shown for Naomi, and he goes, you know what? I'm not only going to stop at that. Right? I'm going to go and I'm going to make sure some bushels of wheat have been left for her. I'm going to make sure that the, the, the men in the field look after her and protect her because she is very vulnerable in those fields right now. He's going to make sure that she doesn't go to another field. He's going to make sure that she comes back every day for the three-month harvest to make sure she's not only provided for for today, but she's provided for, for for the entire year. He's even going to prepare her a meal and say, come sit at my table. I'm going to prepare you a meal, and I'm going to give you leftovers so you can take home to Naomi so she can have a home-cooked meal as well. He does all these things above and beyond what he had to do to be obedient. And that's, where we, that's what we consider an offering, right? So I want you to think about that. Your tithe 
It's being obedient. It's leaving the corners of those fields fallow, right? It's doing what is commanded of us in the Bible, that very daily practical application was commanded for us. Going above and beyond giving of yourself is an offering, giving what God has entrusted to us. Now, we, we use these words synonymously all the time. If you hear me up hosting in the sanctuary and I say, we're going to now continue to worship with our tithes and offerings, you might think it's the same thing. But I want you to understand that difference. But God gives us this mechanism not only to make sure the finance guy of the church is happy and that I can make sure the lights are running, right? It's not only for that reason, right? God gives us this mechanism of the tithe because he knows that the sin of greed and self-indulgence is crouching at your door. And he's saying, use your tithe to build a barrier in between you and sin. If you have a desire to always want more, give away what you have that would make you able to get more, right? If you have a desire to always indulge, to have something nicer, something better, give away what you have that puts that temptation in your heart. Because just like you said, it's not yours anyway, right? It's not yours anyway. Now, the truth is, what we do is we're hospitable to it. We're hospitable to it. Instead of building a fence that is so high that we say, across that fence and you will not pass, we build a little speed bump normally, right? And, and, and when we build a speed bump, we're still being fairly hospitable to the sin that's crouching at our doors. I want you to think about the tithe in a different way. Does God tell us to give 10%? Yes. And you probably all heard that many, many times, right? Does Jesus reiterate that message in the New Testament? Yes. I don't have to prove that to you. You've probably all read it many times. I want you to think about it differently. For what reason does God give us this mechanism? What reason does he give us this instruction? It's because he loves us and he knows that you will have a greater joy, a greater fulfillment in your life, a greater relationship with him if you are hostile to the sin that's crouching at your door. Does that make sense? So the mechanism, if you kind of look at this handout I gave you, the defense of greed and self-indulgence is the tithe. It's our tithes and our offerings. It's, it's giving back what we could be using to indulge internally. I know I, I struggle with this. Um, I, I struggle with this a lot, to tell you the truth. I, uh, and, and I don't say this to, to, to brag or be arrogant in any way, uh, but the role I had before I came to the church was a role that made a lot more money uh, than what you can imagine God pays. God, God doesn't quite pay me as much uh, as the corporate world did. And that was hard. It, it was hard to make that adjustment to go from living a life of utter indulgence, right, to, to living the life that I've been called to live. And I had to give up a whole lot of things, um, you know, and it's things I look back on now that were so important to me that now that I think about it, it was all pretty silly and not really necessary. Uh, I used to fly first class all around the world. That was really fun. I took a picture. I took a picture of my last first class airline trip. I was, I was flying back uh, to America. I had quit my job in the corporate world in Australia, and I was flying back to America to take this role here in the church. And I had so many points on my airline from, from business travel that, that I had a coach ticket that got upgraded to first class. And so I, I sit there, and I put my feet up and took a picture, and I go, the last time you ever fly first class. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was a great trip. Uh, but, but I want to say, it was very normal. We're going to go to the nice hotels. We're going to fly first class. We're going to do all these things. 
And, and I just kept indulging and indulging. And even when I got here and I knew that as the finance guy of the church, I was going to be held accountable to be, the, to be an example to everybody of what it means to have good fiscal stewardship. It was hard. I was afraid that the math wasn't going to work, that God was not going to provide for the way I thought that, that we were going to be able to survive, to change from the income change. And it was hard to make sure that I was obedient with my tithe. And then I got here, and, and my wife and I started talking about it. I was like, man, we need, we need a second vehicle. And every time I've ever owned a vehicle, I've owned a nice truck. I mean, I've had a nice truck. And from the time I was 21 years old when I entered the corporate world, I've had a nice truck. And I found this truck. It was a, it was a brand new F-150 FX4. It was lifted with big mug tires. It was bright red. It would have been the truck you want to see your finance guy driving around the church, right? <laughs> You would have all come up and, and wanted to reconcile how I count the offering if you had seen this truck. And I wanted this truck. And I even got, I even found a, a dealer discount. And I talked to a guy here in the church. And I was like, I can get it for cost. And I looked at it and I go, I can afford it. I just have to stop tithing, right? I can't tell you how tempting it was to get that truck because I've always had it. But you know what? I drove a 1995 Ford F-250, and I have more men come up to me and talk about that truck uh, than you would ever imagine. Everyone loves my F-250. And uh, it's got 200,000 miles on it. It was $9,000. Uh, and it gets me from A to B just as well as that other truck would have, right? And, and so you just you think about how tempting the idea of indulgence is. I want you to think about that, that we've got to be on guard because that lion is always crouching right outside. And trust me, what God provides is so much better than anything we could desire on our own. What he provides us, the joy, the peace that comes in following him, the, the anxiety that goes away when you realize I'm not in massive debt because I've trusted in him. It is a radically different life. There's a reason why other people are crushed under the weight of the pressures of this world. It's because they're chasing lies, right? God is a beautiful, be God offers us a beautiful, beautiful truth, but we have to trust in him. And that means with our tithes, we cannot put up speed bumps. We've got to put up gates. He showed us how to do that. The other thing you see in this passage of the parable of the rich fool is this idea of self-centeredness, Right? So greed, wanting more, self-indulgence, actually indulging in more, wanting the nicer things, and then, and then self-centeredness. Look how many times either I or my or me is listed in this parable. 12 or 13 times, right? He's talking about it's all mine. It's about me. And that's something that you're, that's a lie you're being told more than probably any other lie right now. You think about the way our economy is driven for just a second. Our economy is currently driven on a convenience-based economy, right? You're willing to pay for convenience now above all things. That's why Amazon is going to take over the world, right? <laughs> we're, we're living on convenience. It's about me. Everything is about me. Your, your social media will be tailored without you even realizing it to the things you want to see. Your political views, you're going to be like, everyone agrees with me. Well, no, it's just the algorithms and social media showing you the things that you already agree with, right? It's everything is going to be tailored fit right now to you, right? And God's saying, remember that, that story in Exodus? He goes, I am going to do marvels. I brought you out of Egypt. I am doing a great work through you. But make no doubt, it's about God. And, and we can even creep into this when we come into this place, 
right? And, and, and I, I love everybody in the church, and you will find that a lot of people who come into the church come in for a personal need. They come in, and that's great. We will take them where they are, and we will lead them to Christ, right? But a lot of people come into the church because they're lonely, and they need a friend, or because they've gone through some horrible life event, and they just need relief from that pain, or, 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 or just a number of things, or, the, or they're... they're church that they've been going to for 40 years decided to play a contemporary song, they say, absolutely not. Hell hath no fury like a fog machine, right? So, so, so they come to a different church. And, we, and we, we can easily cater to that, right? And make this place about us. What am I getting out of this music? What am I getting out of this message? What am I getting out of the programming? What am I getting? What am I, I, I? It's about me. And I even had this, I started volunteering at the community center uh, on Thursday afternoons, which, uh, which we have a program called The Club, and it's for John Marshall students. And I started doing that about three years ago. And I remember whenever I did it and I started serving over there, I did it for me. I did it for this reason. I wanted to get out of my North Oklahoma City bubble. I wanted to be around people that were different than me. Uh, I wanted to get exposed to that. I wanted to drive south of Memorial every now and then. And, and I was doing it for me. For, for what I might get out of the education. What's fascinating about this, if you look at this last bullet, the defense against self-centeredness is where you spend your time, right? And why do you spend your time doing it? Do you spend your time consuming things about you or do you spend it doing things for others, right? Eventually, after about a year of working with those kids, I realized it's not about me, not about what they think about me. It's not about what I'm getting out of this. It's about what they're getting out of it. Right? What is God going to use me for in this capacity? And when you let go of, if I'm not getting this out of it, if I'm not, getting, if I'm not enjoying it, and you let go of that, what freedom it is to say, God, use me as your tool. This is about what you're doing through these kids, and use me. Use me. We have to slowly change this paradigm that it's not about us. It's about the glory of God and how beautiful it is to be used by him. But be on guard. Use your time, how you invest your time to be about the things of God instead of the things of man. And the, here's the, the fascinating thing about all of this. It's better God's way. It's so much better God's way. But we believe that lie. Don't put up the speed bumps in front of sin. Put up the fence, right? Protect yourselves. Be faithful in that little bitty daily application uh, with God. Pray about this. Now, I think, what time does this class get out? 10, 15? Is that right? Well, you know what? What Cliff, whatever Cliff says. I told you I was only getting 25, through 25% of the lesson. You may sit there, and you guys in this class in particular, you've been studying God's word in depth each and every week. And this lesson may not be as applicable to you as it is the people that you're going to go out and talk to today, that you're going to talk to this week, the, the people that God's going to use you to witness to. And I want to tell you, this is a massive problem in the church. I'm going to give you a couple quick stats before I let you go. I want you to understand how big of a problem this is. Across America, roughly 40% of all churchgoers give nothing. Nothing to the church at all. And I'm, I'm going to give you, give you American stats, like American church stats, but I want to tell you Crossings is not very far behind any of these statistics. Um, also, I've got a list here of all the people in this class who haven't tithed in the last three weeks. So I was going <laughs> to... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, 40% of churchgoers don't give anything. 
the people who actually tithe, people who do give their 10%, normally only make up 10 to 25% of all congregations. Uh, 80% of the people who do give to churches, so the, of the people who give, 80% of them have no debt. Isn't that interesting? You feel like you can't give to the church until you wipe away your debt. Uh, so once I've taken care of my problems, I'll then give to God. It's, so it's, but that's the lie we tell ourselves. Um, also, in our church, well, I'm sorry, all churches, 50% of the people who do give, give less than $500 a year. And, and just to put that in perspective, and I tried to get Marty to say this one year, and I don't know if he said it the way I meant to have him say it, so I apologize. <laughs> if, you were to, if you were to say you had a family, and you had a husband, wife, and only one person worked uh, outside the home. My wife has told me, work outside the home. <laughs> only one person worked outside the home, and that person made minimum wage and worked 40 hours a week at minimum wage. If they were to give 10% of their income, they would give $1,500 a year in their tithe. 50% of the people in this church and other churches who give, give less than $500 a year. The median giving in this church, the median, so kind of you, you took the spectrum and you said, right in the middle, where is it? The median here in this church is $1,300 a year. In this church. And I have to say, we're a bit more affluent than most churches, right? So I just want you to think about that going... Marty would be the first one to go up here to say, is the church in financial issues? No, not at all. We have what we need to do the ministry God's asking us to do. Not a whole lot more, not less. We have what we need. Uh, but doesn't it worry you with everything we just talked about in the lesson? How many people have just little bitty speed bumps around them that are just letting this lie, the lies of the world attack them and what our church congregation might be dealing with? I would encourage you that if this is you today, if you kind of go, you know what, we've never been faithful with our tithe, I'd encourage you to actually pray about that together, especially if you're married. Pray about that. Get on the same page together. And maybe take one step forward, you know. Uh, it, it may be, you know, we're going to start, we can't get to 10% tomorrow, but we can do more. We can show our faith. And, and God tells us over and over again, he goes, test me on this. You'll see, I'll take care of you. Test me on it. But keep stepping out in faith, little by little. Build yourself up. You could take the next three years, you could take every raise you get. The American, every American on average gets a 3.2% raise a year, and that's a stat. You may be higher or lower, 3.2% a year. If you did that over three years, unless you're a teacher, and then you never get paid, right? <laughs> so, but if you took that raise every year for the next three years, you'd be well over 10%, right? So even if you just think about intentionally different things you can do to try to become faithful with your tithe, be faithful, be intentional. Start building that gate to put around you and your family. Start, start analyzing, why am I spending my time on these things? This is about me. Can I do something to, to shift that, to, to be about God, to be about others that he puts in my path? Really think about this, because this is a problem you may be struggling with personally. You may not be. And if you're not, though, I guarantee you, most of the people in your friend group are. Right? Be good advocates for God's word. Teach the truth, because the truth is filled with hope here. And I think about this. I gave you that statement that the church has what it needs, crossings as a church, has what it needs to do the ministry of this church. 58% of our budget goes towards salaries, uh, benefits, personnel costs, pastoral costs, uh, different things to actually have people like me up here doing what we do. 22% uh, of our budget goes towards direct ministry costs, so the cost to actually conduct ministries. And 20% of the cost goes to keeping the lights on, keeping security paid, keeping the lawn and grounds, you know, all the plant fertilizer we have to pay for around this place. All those things that we do to maintain the operations, we spend about 20% of our church budget on. 
and you add up all that money, it comes about $23 million a year what this church has to pay, which sounds crazy until you start looking at all that God does through this church. But you think about that and you go, oh my gosh, you know, that's a lot of money. I'm so glad the church has what it needs. And I started thinking last night to myself going, am I being naive about this? Am I, am I, do I really actually think that the church has what it needs? Or am I backtracking at times into a budget because I know that's all we're going to get? And, and am I limiting what I think God's really asking us to go do because I know we only have that amount because most of the people are giving $1,300 a year on median or less? Am I backing into a number and then solving to that? Or am I actually going, God, what do you want us to do? And then trusting that he's going to provide. If only the 60% of the people in this church were tithing, if all, the people who give currently, if they went from giving normal to tithing, if we had everyone working together, being obedient to God's word, the way it says, we'd probably be planting five, six, seven churches a year in this city. You know, if, if everyone who came to this church was tithing, we'd probably be planting 15 to 20 churches a year in this city where there's darkness everywhere, where God's hope is needed. And I, I, I thought about that going, am I actually being naive? And that's where I came up with this. Are we being hostile or hospitable? Am I being hospitable by being afraid to talk about this? When this is a real sin that we're all dealing with, right? And so I want you to go home and be hostile to this sin, right? And if you have any questions about this, I want you to talk to me about it. But be hostile because you never know what all God will do through his faithful people. Steve, yes. Yeah, our missions budget today is about $2.3 million. Think about that. It wasn't long ago. It was 74000 And we spend $2.3 million on direct missions work on an annual basis, plus some other stuff that will come in on top. We probably actually spend about $2.6, $2.7. So, so you just think about that. God is doing incredible things through this church. I always just want to step back and go, what if we were all actually faithful, all of us, faithful? What would God do through that? Because it's not our power. It's not our money. It's not our field that we're supposed to be leaving fallow. It's God, right? So let's be faithful to that. Let me pray for us. If you have any questions, uh, I'd love to talk after class. Father, I thank you uh, for this group. I thank you for this class. Just thank you for Cliff's leadership all these years. I uh, thank you that the word is what is faithfully preached here. Not my opinion, not Cliff's opinion, not Marty's opinion, but the word. We trust in you because we trust in your ways. We know that your ways are higher than ours and your thoughts are higher than ours. And we know we cannot do this on our own. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for protecting us against the lies of this world. Thank you for being in a relationship with us. Thank you for just showing us your grace and your mercy. May we put our trust in you. Watch over us today. Watch over this class. Watch over our church. Protect us and make us well. In Jesus' name, amen.